But today we're finishing our series, as I said, and we're going to be looking at this idea of God never said, you do you. And you may say, what does that even mean? Well, you'll understand it in a moment. If you're at a generational level where that's not quite clear, it's okay, we'll make it clear in just a second. I don't know if you've seen the new, newest marketing campaign of Pepsi. They have released a new slogan and a new sales pitch for this year, 2020, and I want to read this to you. Pepsi wants to encourage, of course, Pepsi, the soda brand, wants to encourage everyone to unapologetically do what you enjoy, even in the face of others' judgment. Live your life like no one is watching. In the modern vernacular, they are saying, you do you, which, for those of you that don't know, it means, you do you, in the Urban Dictionary, means uh, the act of doing what one believes is the right decision, and to clean it up for church, everyone else can just mind their own business. That's what you do you means. I'm going to do what I think is right, and everyone else can just mind their own business. Besides an urban description of Pepsi's motto, there is also a philosophical description of what Pepsi is basically saying here, and it's referred to as moral relativism. This philosophical position embraces uh, the idea that I should be able to do whatever I want to do. And now normative moral relativism, which is quickly gaining traction in our society, is the idea that I should be able to do whatever I want to do and no one else should have a problem with it. I'll do me, you do you, and let's all just not have a problem with anything that anyone does. This philosophical bent, though, is not just a, uh, an idea that is out there in the world, but it is actually something that is creeping into the minds and the lives of many Christians. There are some Christians, maybe individuals even here, that, that live life believing that God has actually said, you know what, I don't care what you do, just so long as you love me or believe that I exist, I am good. Some people believe that God has said, you do you. But God never said that. God is not saying that, and God has never said that. I want to give you two quick examples of this, this idea creeping into to Christian thought and Christian minds and, 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 and Christian communities. One is something that I read recently in the Washington Post just within the last couple weeks, and another is a personal illustration of a conversation that I recently had with a fellow Adventist. But the story from the Washington Post, there was a young lady that was expelled from a Christian academy in Louisville, Kentucky recently, and the school said she had violated their moral code of conduct on multiple occasions. And her final action, which seemed actually quite innocuous, didn't seem anything extreme, but they felt was a symbol of an ongoing issue, was a picture that she had posted on Instagram, and so the school dismissed her. For the purposes of this sermon, what caught my eye is that the school claimed that they had clearly laid out to this family, to the mother and to the daughter, the biblical position that they had on such issues, and that the mother had signed a document and a form expressing her understanding and her acceptance of those uh, positions and those viewpoints. I went to the school's website to see how actually clear this was, and, and the school's website, there's a, there's a single page that is devoted to their mission, their vision, 
their philosophy of education and their values. And it's quite a dense page of writing. In fact, uh, Jason would probably rebuke it because you're not supposed to have uh, web pages now with too many words on it. But it is 50 lines of word, 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 sentence after sentence. But amongst these 50 lines, which I read, are 34 scripture references. They have a reference for every single thing that they that they put down there to support their positions. It is basically a Bible study of what they believe and why they believe it. Why do I share this? Because the mom acknowledged she understood the school and the school's principles of what she described as what they believe is Christ-like living, and she was aware of those positions, and in the article she acknowledges that she signed the document affirming those positions. But then the mother asked this question, and she is quoted asking this question, but really, who can determine what is Christ-like and what isn't? This struck me because their paper on Christ-like behavior is based on the Bible. She said she saw it, she understood it, but now she's saying, even though there's Bible to support it, who can really determine what is actually right or wrong for my kid? The second story is this. I was eating with a friend of mine in the not-too-distant past, an individual that is not a member here at Spencerville Church, but is a Seventh-day Adventist. And this person said to me at one point in the conversation, we were having a dialogue about something that was happening amongst uh, another group of our, of our friends, and we were discussing this, and this person said to me, Chad, I just don't think anyone should be able to tell a person after a certain age what they are doing is right or wrong. If they're not hurting anyone physically, then, then no one should be able to tell anyone after a certain age if what they are doing is actually right or wrong. I, as kindly as I could, informed this person that I disagreed with them strongly. I shared a couple other sentences just to get in the last word because, you know, I'm a preacher. And then I said, but let's not argue about it. Um, and uh, this individual agreed with me that we would not argue about it. And we moved on, still friends, after the meal. But these are people, this, is, this type of thinking is moral relativism, and more than that, it's normative moral relativism. That not only should I be able to do what I do, but you shouldn't have a problem with it. They think that God says to me and to us, you do you. But God never said that. God isn't saying that. And God actually never will say that as long as we are on this earth. In fact, there is a picture in the Bible of a time when God's chosen people chose to live by this motto. The Israel lived by the idea, the, the idea of you do you. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges. It's towards the beginning of the Bible, the book of Judges, just after the book of Joshua. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. In the book of Judges, chapter 21 and verse 25. Book of Judges, chapter 21, and verse 25. And the Bible tells us, Genesis, or Judges, chapter 21, and verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel, and then here's what it reads. Everyone, everyone did what was right in his own or her own what? Eyes. Everyone did what they thought was right in his or her eyes own eyes. That is how our modern culture and even some within the church are inviting us 
to live. What did Pepsi say? We encourage everyone to unapologetically do what you enjoy. What did that mother say? Who really determines what is Christ-like? If my child thinks it's right or if I think it's right, then who can really determine what is Christ-like? What did my friend say? No one should be able to tell others what is right or wrong as long as they are not physically harming someone else. Christianity is starting to go right along with this flow. If people are good and say they love Jesus, all is great. You do you. You do you. And I'll do me and we'll be fine. That is what Israel was doing in the book of Judges. Everyone was doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. But how did God feel about this type of living? Go back to the book of Judges and the, the second chapter, the, the beginning of the book of Judges. In chapter 2 of Judges, verse 11, God gives us an idea of what he thought about this type of living. Verse 11, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, God would send judges to help guide the people to him. And the people would, would listen to God for a time through these judges, and then they would decide, you know what, we're going to go back to doing our own thing. And every time they did this, God describes that as the people doing evil. When they decided to ignore the counsel of God from the judges, and they decided to go and do their own thing, what they thought was right in their own eyes, God says this is evil. Evil is a, is a strong word. God never said to humanity, I don't care what you do. God does not say to humanity today, you do you. And God won't say this to us while we live on this earth. Because when humanity does what, when we as people do what we believe is right in our own eyes, it leads to evil. Some people believe the rules of the Bible or telling people something is right or wrong. They believe that telling someone that they should live a certain way or participate in a certain action in their lives, that this type of behavior is legalism or that it's repressive or that it is the church or, or religion or the parents just trying to suppress fun and, and control people and, and, and limiting those individuals. I was reading a blog on parenting not too long ago and this lady wrote a blog article uh, talking about how she was trying to teach her children what is referred to as first-time obedience. Now, in your day and age, this is just called obedience, but now it's called uh, first-time obedience to, our, to, to the younger and newest of parents. And it is the idea that when kids are told to do something that they obey the first time. Novel, right? I mean, it's novel. There's actually blogs written about like how, how that this is the way to parent and some that say it's not. But this mother was, was writing this blog about this. So this, this, in other words, is you tell your child, hey, go clean your room, and they go clean their room, and you don't have to tell them again. That's, that's first-time obedience. Hey, can you go clean your room? All right. They go clean their room, first-time obedience. So this mother writes this article, even using the, uh, the, the bedroom example, you would have thought that she had taken a whip and put shards in it and whipped her children based on some of the comments. Let me read to you some of the comments that were, were below uh, this. One person said, training kids to obey in this way is to take away all free will. 
Another said, creative thinking is destroyed by training kids to be first-time obeyers. And I know that obeyers is not a word, but I'm just quoting here. No one taught her how to uh, use words correctly the first time. But <laughs> And one said, she felt sorry for this lady and her kids because her oppressive parenting style would raise robots and not entrepreneurs. People are shifting their mindsets to, to teach such things, to teach rules and obedience is oppressive, either oppressive by God, oppressive by the church, oppressive by, by parents. You do you. And we'll all be fine with it. Our world hears or reads about obedience and they jump to the negative. And let me say this, this is in part our fault. Because at times we have taught that obedience is about just rules and no, 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 rather than what it's supposed to be about. So it's partly our fault. It's partly we are to blame. But God does not call us to obey because of control. God does not set boundaries in our lives for, to oppress us. God does not call us to obey because he wants to somehow manipulate us into giving up our free will and being robots for him. God set boundaries in our lives for protection, and not only for protection, but God set boundaries in our lives for happiness and, and, and for success and for joy. These are why these things exist. Read the Bible and you'll see it over and over again. A, a verse like Deuteronomy chapter five, verse 33. God says, you know, I want you to obey so that you can prosper and have a good long life and enjoy this earth to its fullest. You know, there used to be a song that we sang when we were kids, whether you were raised in Sunday school or, or Sabbath school. Trust and obey. Can you sing with me? For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. I sang it a little higher for you all this time around. First service really struggled with a me going low. We, we used to believe that. That to trust and obey really actually brought happiness and joy and peace into our lives. And yet now it's, you live unapologetically however you want. You do you. And everyone else needs to be okay with it. But God knows us. He is our creator. He is the one who made us. And, and so because of that, he inspired things in the scriptures to, to remind us that you doing you isn't really a good idea. And it's not because I want to control you. It's not a good idea because it's not a good idea for you. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 25. There is a way that seems right to a man or to a woman, but its end is the way of what? Death. Its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems maybe right to you in your human thinking, in your human ways, but its end is the way to death. God doesn't say, I want you to obey because I want you to, to suffer under me. God says, I want you to obey because I don't want you to ruin your own life. God knows that left to our own devices, we will be our own ruin. We'll be our own ruin. Dr. Martin Luther King, who we as a nation owe much to, has a very famous quote that is recited often. Our, 
the predecessor to our current president, loved uh, this quote. And it's the quote, the arc of, moral un- of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And it is often misused because it is the idea that if we just keep working at it, that if we keep plugging away at it, that eventually we're going to get to the right way. And so people see us progressing in various ideas and they say, man, we're getting there, we're getting there. But the scripture says, no, that's not what actually happens. In fact, Dr. King, even in his original statement of this, was not speaking of justice actually being fully fulfilled on this earth. He was clear that it was only through the divine power and through Christ ultimately coming and making things right that there is true justice. You see, the arc, the arc of the moral universe is long, but in this world, that arc crumbles under our ideas and our thinking. The Bible tells us that as history goes along, people become more inclined to do as they please, and this ultimately leads to degradation, to destruction, to our own demise. Second Timothy, if you want to turn there. Second Timothy, chapter three, verses one through four. But understand this, that in the last days, this is verse one of chapter three of Second Timothy, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I read that one to my kids and said, hey, did you look how serious God takes obedience to parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is not a list that it looks like the arc of moral justice is leaning towards anything good in this world. In the last days, this is what the Bible says will be taking place. But then is what is so striking about this text is the next verse. Verse 5. Having the appearance of what? Godliness, but denying his power. In other words, all of this is under the cloak of Christian faith. Folk that say, hey, you do you, it's fine. There's a Jesus, he loves you, it's all good, you do you. And folk just decay. A form of godliness but denying its power. The end of verse 5 says, have nothing to do with such people. And the Lord is not telling us not to talk to these people The Lord is not telling us not to witness to these people. The Lord is not telling us even not to be friends with these people. Sometimes we can hear something like this and we decide to cloister ourselves off. Don't do that. That is not what the Bible is telling us. The Bible is told us to be uh, lights on a hill, right? To be the salt of the earth. So so we're to be out there amongst them and, and mingling. What this is saying when it says, do not, how does it say, have nothing to do with such people. What it's saying is have nothing to do with such ideas, such ways of living, such culturally uh, accepted things. Spend time with those people, witness those people, but be different from them. Have nothing to do with their way of living. 
Don't fall in line with them and their ways of thinking. Paul states it another way in the book of Romans, chapter 12, and verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world. God has never said, you do you. God does care what we do, and despite what Pepsi said, we should live as if others are watching. Most importantly, we should live as if God is watching. We are told, do not be conformed to this world. The you do you concept, the moral relativism, relativism mentality, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that, is, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Second Timothy chapter three says that these things that will happen in the last days are in my Bible, it says difficult. Some of your translations actually say terrible. But the will of God, the Bible tells us, is good and acceptable and perfect. If we live by the world's motto, the ark of justice is crumbling. If we live by God's motto, it's good and acceptable and perfect. So how do we do this? How do we have our minds renewed, washed clean from the philosophical lies and ideas and concepts of this age? And really, this whole series has been about this, that we live by ideas that we think are acceptable to God, by philosophies that we believe are acceptable to God, by, by, by things that we thought God has taught, but he hasn't really taught them at all. And our minds need to be restored, and how does that happen? Well, now we get back to Psalm 1, which was read for us this morning. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man or the woman. This means to really live life to the fullest that Jesus has for each one of us. That's what blessed means. Some translate, of course, happy, but it really means blessed are those who, who, who are living life. The, the person who lives life to the fullest that God has for them is a blessed person. And then it says this, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, her delight is in the law of the Lord, and on God's law they meditate day and night. Psalm 1 lays it out. We don't walk, stand, sit in the ways of the world. Walk, stand, sit. These words describe someone becoming more and more like the world. First we walk, hang out with it a bit. Second, we start to stand because we're a little more comfortable with it. And finally, we sit down and we fellowship with the things of this world. Because now no longer are those ideas the world's ideas. They now become our ideas. Psalm 1 is painting a picture of this person who's first walking, then standing, and then sitting. Getting more and more comfortable with the ideas of the world and saying, you know what? I'm more and more comfortable with telling everyone you do you, and I'll be okay with that. This is not what we are supposed to do, though. The Bible says, blessed are those who do not do these things. Rather, those are blessed that delight in the law of the Lord, and on his law, we meditate day and night. Let me start with the back half of that text. I cannot delight in something 
Listen, I cannot delight in principles. I cannot delight in instruction. I cannot delight in, obe- in, 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 in ideas and philosophies if I don't know what those things are. The reason why we live by so many things that are not from the scripture is because we don't really actually know the scripture. I can't delight in, in, in this book and what it teaches unless I spend time with it. I was, uh, I'm an iPhone user. I've been an iPhone user for about 12 years. That's not like a, I'm an addict, you know, hi Chad, that's not that, but I'm an iPhone user. Maybe it has something to do with addict, you know, those phones, they're really, ugh. But, but when I, before I had an iPhone, I had a Blackberry. Do any of you remember the Blackberry? And uh, I even owned stock in Blackberry. Boy, was that a bad decision. But, um, uh, and you had, the, you had the, you know, little typewriter thing. I thought it was pretty cool. I love my Blackberry. My brother-in-law got an iPhone, and I said, I will not be associated with the iPhone because uh, I hadn't spent any time with the iPhone. You know, I, I love, I spent all my time with the Blackberry. I love the Blackberry. But I had not spent any time with the iPhone. Then my wife got an iPhone, and I began to covet, and so then I bought myself one, and I've been an iPhone user for now, probably, I guess, close to 12 years or so. You can't value something until you spend time with it. You, you don't engage with something until you spend time with it. I cannot delight in the principles and even the rules and the boundaries that are laid out in this book if I don't know them and don't understand why they are there. I have to read it to know it, which is why the text tells us those who meditate on it day and night. And this doesn't mean we're not being monks going out. This does not mean I am reading it day and night. It means that I have spent enough time in the Bible that it is in my thoughts So with every decision I make, the Bible is there informing my thoughts. With every cultural conflict that I come into, the Bible is there informing my thoughts. With every moment where my desires or my feelings want to go a certain way, the Bible is there informing my thoughts. I'm going to describe what this text is saying this way, that we spend so much time in the Bible that when you are confronted with a belief, a lifestyle, a desire, your own feelings, a philosophy that is in this world that is, that is in opposition to the Bible, that we say no to the world and we say yes to what is Scripture. That means when God says, when folks say God doesn't care what you do, you do you, you'll say no, God does care. And what he says is blessed is the one who does what is in my word, what is in my truth. The truth is this, all of us, every one of us will eventually be corrupted by that culture and influenced by that culture if we have not made the word of God our highest authority and allowed his spirit to speak into us. If I am taught something that does not coincide with the word of God, I go with the word of God. If I have a desire or a belief inside of me that does not coincide with the word of God, I go with the word of God. 
if my friends and my family are encouraging me to do something that does not coincide with the word of God, I go with the word of God. If the world tells me it's okay now to do whatever you want to do unapologetically, you do you, but it does not coincide with the word of God, I go with the word of God. Because the word of God says, not you do you, but the word of God says, man shall not live by, breath, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Folk, we live in a you-do-you you culture, but I pray that we will be counter-cultural and that we, through the power of Jesus, who only wants to protect us and give us the deepest joys that we don't even know are there, that we will choose to say no to that culture and yes to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus, I thank you for your grace towards us. I thank you that, that though we cannot live this way by ourselves, none of us in here, doesn't matter how good we are, how, how much we've been trying or how long we've been at it, we can't live by your word unless you empower us to do so. But we also can't know your word unless we spend the time in your word. So as we've gone through this whole series and we've seen all these ideas that, that the world and that we even live by sometimes, Lord, help us to recognize that the, that the one answer is that you have chosen to communicate to us through prayer and through Bible study, through worship of you. And so Lord, may we commit ourselves to those things that we will do all that gives your name glory and honor and praise. And we will do this not by our might nor by our power, but by your spirit. And we will rejoice in the better lives we will have by living in obedience and counterculture to this world. In your name we pray, amen.